Nanoscale with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hi and welcome to the Robots Podcast. I am Jana and today we focus on really tiny robots, also called micro and nanobots. These kind of robots are only a few millimeters or even just nanometers in size. Possible applications of micro and nanorobots include use in surgery or medicine, for example as smart drug delivery systems. Professor Dr. Bradley Nelson works at ETH Zurich and is one of the world's leaders in micro and nanorobotics. His lab has repeatedly won the International RoboCup's Nanogram Soccer League and he holds the world record for designing the most advanced mini-robot for medical use. Our interviewer Audro spoke to Professor Nelson about his latest research, including surgical nanobots, crystal harvesting and robots with simulated tails for mobility. Hi, can you introduce yourself? I am, my name is Brad Nelson. I am a professor at uh, ETH Zurich, the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology. I'm the professor of robotics and intelligence systems there. Uh, I've been there for almost 13 years now. Can you tell me the big picture goal of your research? Uh, the focus of our lab is on micro and nano robotics. What, uh, what we're trying to understand how to do are make small machines and make them as small as we can and uh, Along the way, then, uh, we, we, we develop fabrication techniques, processes to manufacture them. Uh, we, we look at ways to make them move. Uh, we look at applications for them and, and try to put that all together into a whole, uh, into a whole story to, to, to try to move the technology from, from fundamental research into uh, uh, some type of, sometimes it's a spin-off, sometimes it's a clinical application, uh, sometimes it's, it's something we might license to another company. So. That's where we're, we're trying to go with, with what, what goes on in the labs. And so just how small are these? Can you compare them to something? Well, so we work uh, things that are millimeters down to nanometers in scale. So um, one of the things we've worked on uh, for several years now, uh, I think in 2007, was the first time we realized a, a device we call an artificial bacterial flagella. That's a uh, a little, we call a swimmer, it's about the size of a bacteria. It's maybe uh, 15 or 20 microns long. To give you an idea how small these are, you could, if you had a, a teaspoon, you could fit about 3 billion uh, in a teaspoon. So they are, they're very tiny. They are, uh, uh, you know, you put five of them head to head and they might be about the width of a hair. So they're, uh, those are, those are the, kind of the, the smallest things we can see those with optical microscopes. But then we also do a lot of work on nanofabrication with nanowires and and nanostructures uh, where you, you simply can't even see them with optical microscopes. We need electron microscopes for that. And so some of these structures will go down to 30 nanometer diameter uh, sizes. But, uh, but then, and so that it's, it's, uh, it's a whole range of, 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 of devices. And then we have things we put, for instance, in, in the eye that are uh, perhaps a, a millimeter or two long. And so what are some applications of these? You mentioned putting them in the eye. Well, so one thing we've been yeah, working on for a while has been retinal surgery, uh, ways we can deliver drugs, uh, load particular kinds of drugs onto these and deliver them to specific, specific locations on the retina. 
uh, to target uh, diseases such as age-related macular degeneration or diabetic retinopathy. Or um, that's, that's, Those are applications there. Now, um, uh, we also then realized that, that some of the technologies we've developed are also not, not just good for moving micro-robots, but also good for moving small catheters, small endoscopes that you might want to put into your body. So then we also work on uh, how we might guide... Uh, not just untethered, you know, uh, autonomous m- machines, but but how can we guide um, small small endoscopes or, or or catheters maybe that go into your heart, mm-hmm. um, um, into the brain, uh, these kinds of kinds of applications. Do you see applications outside of the medical field? We do. We we've worked on um, uh, some of the the lessons we've learned in how to handle small objects. Uh, we're applying to uh, the field of, of uh, protein crystallography. Uh, this is a, a step in uh, drug discovery. So, uh, when you're when uh, one of the one of the methods for discovering drugs is first of all developing um, uh, models of proteins. And uh, you know, while we can we can uh, you know sequence the human DNA, we we know the struct we know the, the the atomic sequence of these. Uh, protein molecules. What we, we we still have to do is understand the, the the structure, the conformation. That's just the shape of these molecules. How do they fold up into what shape? And that also that dictates their their function a lot of times. Now the, the question is, how can you figure that out? And and so there's this whole field of structural biology that um, uh, one of the me- main methods it uses to determine the shapes of these tiny little molecules is it it will isolate these proteins. Uh, and crystallize them, grow them into tiny crystals, and these crystals can be anywhere from uh, hundreds of microns, you know, hundreds of hair widths, and down to to microns, to very very small shapes. Um, and so, what we've done is we've developed some of our microbiotic technology to actually handle these these tiny little crystals and to uh, to to automate the process of of, of retrieving them from. From solution, what they call the mother liquor, and, and placing them on a loop, and then that uh, that little device then is is immediately freeze dried with the protein crystal on it, and then put into a high energy X ray beam, and that X ray diffraction pattern then t- uh, uh, the, the structural biologist can can infer the shape of that. So it's it's a long process, and we have a little uh, part of that, but but nobody's been able to. Uh, many people have tried to automate it with limited success, and we think we have a solution there. So there's. One other application. It's kind of a, a detailed one, but it works. Um, lately, uh, we have been, as well as other people in the microbiotics community, have been thinking about: Are there ways we can use these devices to uh, uh, create uh, catalytic reactions to treat um, wastewater? Uh, catalytic reactions. Uh, to 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 photocatalyze pollutants, for instance, and and and, and make uh, take toxins that are in the environment and and degrade those into harmless. Uh, harmless substances. So the idea basically is to have micro-robots perhaps, uh, you know, put them into to polluted water, have them move through that pol- water and, and uh, treat the water, clean it. Um, and so that's uh, another uh, application that, that, that people are starting to consider as environmental cleanup. So, um, and then we think uh, perhaps there are sensing applications that we can, we can go down as well where we can Put them into an environment and, and look at what chemicals are there, what uh, uh, what other kinds of uh, uh, what things are there. For instance, and, and again, coming back to wastewater, you know, what are what kinds of uh, 
substances in there that we don't want to see, that we don't want to, that we want to uh, uh, get rid of? Can we can we use these as sensing uh, sensors as well to kind of monitor the environment? I see. And so to understand this a little bit better, I would like to talk about a few of your projects. Okay. And so to begin talking about controlling a little micro robot with five degrees of freedom, can you describe that structure? So um, one of the first first challenges we have, first of all, is how to make small things. Well, we, we, there's um, microfabrication technology we borrow from the semiconductor industry to, to, to make small machines. Uh, same, same technology for for making computer chips we can use to make these devices. And then then the, the second problem you're going to look at is, well, then if we can make small machines, how are we going to make them move? What kind of technologies can you use? Uh, um, are there some kind of catal- uh, uh, chemical reactions? Uh, uh, can you use you know some kind of uh, lasers to deliver energy? But I think uh, what, what the community has kind of settled around uh, recently over, over the last decade has been the, the use of magnetic fields. So you generate... Uh, fields externally with electromagnets. So you, you basically take some kind of a, a, an iron core and you, you wrap a wire around it and as you generate the electric current around there you can create uh, weaker or stronger magnetic fields. And so uh, by changing the, the strength of these fields we can, uh, we can exert forces on, uh, and torques on, on these small devices if, if they're made of magnetic material. Um, and so uh, we first started back uh, uh, over a decade ago just doing this in, in two, de- two degrees of freedom, just in, in, on a plane and, and making it move, uh, you know, just on a, on a surface. Um, and then we started working on, on how can we make this a full three degree of freedom problem, move, move, make things move in, in the X, the Y, and the Z uh, 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 coordinate system, and then, um, and then also rotate about those devices. And so then... Um, we talk about a five degree of freedom motion because we talk about moving things in, in X, Y, and Z, translating them, and then rotating them about two pointing directions, and and so that's where we get five degrees of freedom. And and so we realize, okay, we're going to need several electromagnets to do this. You can't, you know, only one will just exert a. You, you can only have one one direction of, of control authority there. Um, and so we started simulating we did a lot of uh, numerical simulations uh, on computer to understand uh, uh, where's the best place to put these magnets and the best way to control them and uh, we realized uh, we didn't quite understand why but we would always come up with with uh, uh, that we needed at least eight of these electromagnets and, and our, our simulations just showed if we had fewer than that we, we there were certain certain places that we just couldn't exert any the, the kind of force or, or torque we wanted on it so we came up and, and realized in 2009 we built a system called we call it the Octomag because it has eight of these electromagnets that we can very precisely control the current in each one and, and, and very precisely move small things with that. Mm-hmm. Can you give me an intuitive reason why you need eight for five degrees of freedom? Well, that's something that we never quite understood until just recently uh, as we go through the math and the physics on it. And um, uh, so one of my postdocs, Andrew Petruska, is working uh, with me on this, and, and Andrew, uh, as he was looking at the math, realized that the, we can uh, we we actually can can prove mathematically that eight is a minimum is a minimum number to pr- provide that, and and it 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 was a non-intuitive result for us because we could f- see people who who built systems that would only have six. Now, a lot of people would build eight electromagnets. Some some groups even use twelve, 
Uh, and so we figured out eight was the minimum. The people who had six would, would, were, were having issues. And so intuitively what's going on is, is the way magnetic fields uh, can generate a force or a torque on something. Well, they, the torque is easy to understand. It's like a, a compass needle in a magnetic field. So, so you know, we always know a compass needle is going to point to the north, and it's just going to align itself with the, the Earth's very, magnetic field. Very similar to like a DC motor. Yeah. And, and so it just aligns itself now. Uh, so we can just by taking our, our field and rotating it, we can get things to to, to rotate as well to the magnetic particles to or magnetic uh, structures of micro robots to to align with that field. Um, but forces are a little more complicated because they require a gradient. In other words, the, a spatial gradient of the field. The field has to be getting stronger in a direction. So in the direction that that field's getting stronger, the the, the micro robot moves in that direction. So you've got a coupling between the, the uh, making the field stronger and their direction, and it's that coupling where the math gets a little complicated, and and you see an inter an, a dependency between the between how you generate the magnetic field gradient and the magnetic field, and that means that with with just uh, you know you, you might think with five degrees of freedom you, you can only do you, you just need five electromagnets but the problem becomes that you can't generate arbitrary gradients and fields at the same time and so you need to add uh more electromagnets and the question is well what's the minimum number and the minimum number for 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 our problem happened to be eight so um, we just had a pe- the, the, the theoretical results just appearing um i think it's online actually right now it hasn't appeared in print but it, it's just just out there and i think then that's going to that shows some insight that I think uh, we're going we're to be able to leverage and, and, and get a better understanding. And it's, it's fascinating. People have been, you know, I mean, uh, uh, understanding how fields are generated, ampere and, uh, you know, uh, galvanic. Uh, uh, you go back into the 1800s, 1700s even, and people, people knew something about this physics. But we're still discovering new things. Uh, even here, we, you know, 300 years later, we're still discovering... Uh, uh, the physics, some of the physics and math that we uh, we didn't quite get, and, and so I think that's going to help us spur us on to new 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 ideas and, and new ways of of making small things move, uh, which is really the the kind of the ultimate goal of what we're trying to do is just figure out how to how do you make small things move. And so now this technology has gone and become a startup. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition to using small robots for crystallography. Uh, can you talk a bit about having a viable business model and research for this? Did you begin the research with a plan of marketing it? So yeah, when, when I started my, my research, so I, I start, became a professor in 1995, so 20 years ago. Uh, you know, my goal then was just to do interesting research, right, and, and uh, be able to write uh, good grant proposals to get research funding and to publish uh, papers that people wanted to read and cite. Um, I think uh, we've, we've been successful in that. And then as we've developed technologies uh, along the way, uh, we, we start to get interested in how can, we, how can we get that in the real world and really make it useful. And that is a tremendous challenge. It's one thing to, to be able to have a research result and publish it. It's another thing to, to actually develop a technology that people want to pay money for and want to want to use and, and to help you know improve people's lives in some way and so um so as i've, I've developed over 20 years uh, my research agenda i start to think more uh 
uh, more carefully about uh, potential business plans that might make sense. And so it depends on, on the area you're working in. In biomedical, it's clear you need you need intellectual property. You need to have patents. And you also need to um, be aware of what the patent landscape is. So, so even now with some of our master's projects, one of the things that uh, uh, we'll do as we're starting a project is we will often go and, and just look at what patents are out there in this area, because if 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 somebody like a Siemens or a, you know General Electric or Philips or somebody has a patent in an area, you know some of those can block the technology. So it doesn't make sense to go down a route where all the you know somebody's got the IP locked up, and 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 even if you do develop this new technology, there's not a, a chance of getting it uh, getting it out. You realize somebody else is is going to be able to. You know, they're the ones that should be pushing it, I think. And so, so you start to think, you know, in biomedical, you start to think in terms of um, can you own or, or do you have the potential to own some important intellectual property in the area and develop that? You also think, um, as you're working on things, what potential therapies might this benefit? And do the, does it make sense from a, a business uh, standpoint to, to develop these thera- therapies? What do you mean therapies? Well, for instance... Um, one of the reasons, one of our, our startups, uh, a company called Aon Scientific, uh, they took our technology and they just and they were starting to look at what what are some some what are some uses for uh, for, for magnetic fields? How can we we what can we do with those? And they they looked at uh, a lot of uh, several different areas. And, and one thing they they realized is, uh, and, and a few other companies have realized this is. Uh, uh, with the aging population, um, more and more people need a particular heart procedure to treat uh, a condition called atrial fibrillation, where your heart doesn't beat properly. The electric signals don't propagate through the heart. It's too fast or too slow. Too fast, too slow. It, it doesn't synchronize properly. And, and so electrophysiologists, cardiac surgeons, have discovered uh, that if they uh, can ablate, they, they, they do a little therapy within the heart, if they ablate certain areas of the heart, then they can kind of reset the heart in a way and, and get it to, to uh, beat. And so people see uh, uh, potential uh, uh, a potential to help a lot of people, but that also means a potential to make money because you're going to have uh, be able to, to charge for these procedures. And so, you know, it takes a tremendous investment uh, to, to get this technology into the clinic. And, and so to justify that investment, you got to realize, are you going to get a return on it? And so, uh, so I think... Uh, you know, we look at, at, at for instance, that, that therapy, and that makes sense. Now, we, we, you might go to a, another therapy we've thought about uh, has been uh, bronchoscopy, uh, putting these into the lungs, uh, putting some of these devices into the lungs, uh, particularly with uh, premature infants, uh, and trying to, to see which, which portions of the lung might be collapsed. And, and that's uh, a therapy we're interested in and have been looking at how we might... Uh, uh, use some of our technology there. Now, the business model isn't so convincing there because there's just not, uh, uh, people just don't project, project the, the potential uh, number of cases that would justify the investment. However, um, you know, that's one of the reasons you've got funding agencies, and, and so then we can go down that path. And One of the reasons we have funding agencies, you mean that they fund research that's they, not as in demand? 
they fund research that maybe we're not. It's not clear what the business what business model, but business plan is going to make sense there. And so then we can we you know we can explore and and we can realize there is there are going to be benefits. We're not sure uh, that maybe uh, you know business investors are going to find it a persuasive case, but it's certainly going to be able to to treat uh, patients. So we we try to to balance the two, um, but but we're always trying to think. Uh, of, of you know of, of of all the problems we're working on, what are the ones that that have the potential to to make a big impact? Making a big impact. There's a lot of ways to measure the impact. Um, one of those is is does the business case uh, is there a business is there a potential business case that might make sense in the future for this? So going back to the steerable catheter mm-hmm. design with Aon Scientific. Mm-hmm. So you insert a catheter and that goes in through the arm or the groin or the neck. Correct. This goes through the femoral artery, yeah, uh, near the groin, uh, up up into the. Uh, it enters the right chamber, and then uh, you can you can move over into the left chamber as well, the mm-hmm. upper left chamber. And actually, you can get into all four chambers with this. I see. And then so that's directed up into the heart, and then it has a flexible end that you direct using similar principles to the five degree of freedom way of manipulating small. Yeah. yeah. So the tip of the end of the catheter, the last few centimeters, are very floppy. Um, but at the very end, you put a uh, basically a permanent magnet, uh, and that permanent magnet then we can very precisely control its its position and its orientation in the heart, and and then uh, use that to deliver uh, a radio frequency uh, uh, therapy uh, to to ablate basically to, to to create these transmural ablations to to keep the, the Stop, stop basically electric signals from passing through certain areas of the heart. So. Mm-hmm. And so the permanent magnet that's at the end, uh, it's much bigger than some of the previous work you've done. What does the control of these magnetic robots, does it scale? Well, it, it yeah, the, the way magnetics tends to scale, and it, it's always a bit confusing. There's not always a, one answer or the other, but, but generally... Um, uh, as devices get larger, magnetic fields can scale more favorably. Um, as they get smaller, uh, one of the, the forces that you generate, magnetic forces and, and torques, are, are a function of the volume of the, magne- of the magnet. And uh, whenever you have something that depends on, on volume, as it gets smaller, that's not good. Because, uh, you know, if I take something... Um, that's 10 centimeters long, you know, something, uh, you know, take a, imagine a cube that's 10 by 10 by 10 centimeters. Uh, well, let's start with a, a meter. A meter by a meter by a meter is a, a cubic meter. Now I go to 10 centimeters. Um, I, I've, I've decreased the size of my cube by, by just a factor of 10, but the volume has gone down by a factor of 1,000. So, uh, so you're getting these incredible decreases in the forces you can generate. So then we have to rethink uh, our strategies. And that's where we get inspired by nature and we go off and, and use, for instance, bacteria uh, and, and, and see, well, why do bacteria, why do, why do E. coli swim with this rotary motor and uh, why do they use this flagella? Uh, and that's... Uh, yeah. So describe the flagella a bit. So um, back in, in, in 1973, uh, Howard Berg when he was at Colorado, discovered uh, that uh, uh, some bacteria, like E. coli and salmonella, uh, they have this little flagella. It's a little hair structure on it, smaller, uh, very thin. 
Uh, and people would look at it under a microscope, and they couldn't tell exactly how it was moving. What Howard was was uh, what discovered, which surprised uh, uh, a lot of people, was that 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 fl- there was actually a rotary motor. There was actually a motor that, that rotated, like our electric motors, but uh, on these bacteria. And people were astounded by that discovery. Um, first example of rotational motion in nature like that. Um, and so it, it moves forward similar to how you, when you turn a screw it moves Yeah, it's like a screw. Wood. So it's, it's, it, it, it rotates this hair, this flagella, in, into this kind of helix shape, kind of a coil like a, a screw, and it, it propels itself that way. Um, and there's a lot of physics, there's a lot of biology uh, that's, that's, that's fascinating about why this works so well at these scales. Uh, how did how did nature evolve this kind of a structure? These are these are wonderful questions, and uh, but we looked at it and 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 we realized you know we 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 can't build that motor. That motor is about forty five nanometers in diameter, and it's got all the you know it's got these uh, you know thirty forty parts that are made out of proteins in it. But what we could make using our, our some recent d- developments in nanotechnology were uh, the flagella. We could make these tiny little screws. And uh, then we realized if we put a little magnet on those screws and we just rotated that field, we could get them to, to turn um, just like uh, the E. coli flagella turn. And, and lo and behold, they started propelling themselves. Uh, they started moving in fluid. And, and that, was, uh, that was back in about in 2007 when we got the first results on that. It's, it's been a very, just a very thrilling, uh, rewarding area of research because we're always discovering something new. And now we're... We've you know recently had a couple papers. One of them where we've we've actually put DNA on these uh, structures, and we've demonstrated as we swim them near cells, we can get uh, the cells to take up the DNA and then and then do gene transfection and, and uh, express these. We we, we put a, a the DNA would uh, coded for a particular fluorescent protein, so then the cells would would express this pro this fluorescent protein, and we could watch the cells start to light up. So that was demonstrating that we can target individual cells and do gene transfection with these. Um, and then we had another uh, project now where we've taken 80,000 of these. This is with a group we did at, uh, at Manchester, at Costas Costarellas group, and, and Fahmin Q, my PhD student, was one of the leads on this research. And we were able to take 80,000 of these ABFs, these artificial bacteria flagella, so we took this whole this huge swarm, huge number of swarms, uh, um, uh, and inject it into a mouse, the peritoneal cavity of a mouse, and uh, dem- and, and would track it uh, swimming uh, within the mouse. And so that's another paper that, that research result that's recently come out. And so that's um, what's the application of that? Well, we're, what we're trying to do is demonstrate just how we can um, load um, uh, potentially, you know, some kind of drug onto these, and how we can then can target a particular location in the body. Um, so we demonstrated that we can load DNA and, and, and do transfection, and we demonstrated that we can uh, move swarms of these and, and target particular locations, in this case in a mouse. Uh, and, uh, you know, then eventually the, the further out steps will be uh, putting some kind of a, a drug that may treat some condition and um, trying to you know, target a particular, some very specific location, maybe a tumor or something like that in the body, and, and get these to swarm around it and, and deliver that drug in that very localized uh, uh, area. All right, and beginning to wrap up, what do you think is the future and timeline of micro and nanorobots? Good question. Uh, what's the future? You know, I, I really think uh, 
the field has, has, has made tremendous strides in the last 10 to 15 years. Um, there's so many interesting problems and, and so many results that, that surprise me that, that have come out. I certainly think that within the next decade, we're cert- we'll see these in clinical trials, uh, these devices. Um, you know, it, it's always difficult to predict the future in these because it's not just uh, overcoming technology hurdles. Um, you know, if, if we're looking at medical applications, the first people we have to get interested in this are the doctors, the people who are going to really use it. They have to understand what the po- potential is, and they have to realize what conditions uh, may be able to be treated with this, and they have to get excited about it and be willing to work with us uh, uh, on it, uh, at least spend some of their, their, their valuable time with us on it. Um, so the first thing is to get doctors involved. Then, then the next thing is, well, it takes tremendous investments uh, and resources to get these things through uh, get all the engineering done properly uh, to get the particular uh, you know FDA regulations or or whatever uh, particular medical regulations need to be followed and and so that means you need business people you need investment uh, uh, in there and those business people have to understand uh, is there a potential to get a return on this investment because if not uh, they should they have to put their money somewhere else where otherwise uh, things 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 come to a halt for them pretty quickly so so you got to bring together not just the engineers and scientists. You got to bring together the medical doctors and the business uh, side of it. Um, and so that's what it always makes it difficult to predict uh, exactly how long these will take. You know, with the right resources, we can move very, very quickly. But with, uh, but but it's not you know not everybody's vision aligns uh, initially, and so you need to uh, need to put this together and 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 hopefully you you know you, you make strides at some point. But I certainly hope. And expect that within um, less than a decade, we'll see we'll see applications uh, in the clinics, and uh, uh, and then I, I think it's gonna you know this kind of thing that once it gets going, it, it will you know, more and more things things we don't we can't see right now will will start to come out, and I'm I'm very confident there. So, thank you. And that's the end of today's episode. Go to robohub.org for all the background to this episode, as well as the latest news and developments in robotics. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Nanoscale with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics.